Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Some of you may be attuned to yesterday's incident, which while it's news is the kind of headline and story that could have been written last month and the month before and the month before that. And it's the story of what happened again at the Kotel, again on Rosh Chodesh. There were two gatherings that experienced tremendous disruption. I'm not going to focus on Nashot HaKotel, on women of the wall, although I will take a moment to pause and acknowledge that we had a member of our congregation, Rachel Green, who took an aliyah there and was present and representing us. Instead, I want to tell you what happened at the Kotel Hamishpachot. It's at the platform some of you formerly knew as Robinson's Arch. It's a piece and a section of the wall that was at a certain point, thank you, there's some extras if people want, that was at a certain point sanctioned by the Israeli government and given into the arms of the Masorti Tnua, the movement in Israel, in order to legislate an area adjacent to the Kotel, though at a, a distance, but in a raised, pleasant platform. And that section has become known as the family Kotel, Kotel HaMishpachot. And again, on Rosh Chodesh, there was a bar mitzvah that was disrupted. It happened to be a North American boy, and the bar mitzvah was being officiated at by a rabbi who graduated from Machon Shechter, a colleague, Rabbi Ari Hasit, who was preparing for a bar mitzvah boy, just like the bar mitzvah, B'nai mitzvah, who you see week in and week out here at Temple Beth Am, except he had made the trip to do a Rosh Chodesh bar mitzvah at the wall. The boy happened to be particularly shy, particularly tentative, it's a lot to do a bar mitzvah at a kotel thousands of miles from home. So Rabbi Hasit really had a pit in his stomach when he saw that they were going to be joined by onlookers who would say and do the same devastating things that we see done on the women's side of the kotel, on the main plaza, during women at the wall. Things were thrown, words were used, words were thrown, disruptions were made, and still, Rabbi Hasid wrote how proudly that boy and his family stood at the Kotel HaMishpachot, enduring this. It's not news, and it's not a new scene, that Judaism in Israel is messy. Do you say, Reshit smichat geulatenu, or shetahei, Reshit smichat geulatenu? Are you in a place where your Zionism is secular and your Judaism is proud and fierce? Or is Zionism an extension of that ideal of the flowering, the beginnings of the flowering of a state of redemption for our people? I'll encourage you and suggest that it's okay if you want to take a look at some of the sources as I share one more story about Israel, but this time it's one that I'm a part of. A few weeks ago, I had the honor and the privilege to travel with Chazanim and Chazaniot from the United States, each of us leaders in our community and or the Cantor's Assembly itself, for a four-day mission 
completely jam-packed, meeting with leaders in Merkaz Olami, which is the branch of the World Zionist Organization that stands in for conservative and our cousin Masorti movements there in Israel, and with Masorti, the Tnua, as it's based in Israel, the movement itself and its leadership. And we met with Havre Knesset, with members of the Knesset of then a standing coalition. If you flip a few pages in, you'll see a picture of Yair Golan sitting next to Mansour Abbas, so a Yesh Atid member sitting next to a Ra'am, a Muslim member of the, uh, of the Knesset at the, at the time, uh, both of them on the coalition. Mansour Abbas was speaking to our group. Yair Golan came a little bit early and he said, come, come sit my brother next to me. All of our meetings were conducted in Hebrew. Every single meeting that we had over the mission conducted in Hebrew. And I want to express some gratitude to my colleague, Luis Catan, Chazan Luis Catan in Westport, Connecticut, because his having pushed us to do that not only opened up grounds for new conversation, but gave me new vocabulary to speak about Judaism in Israel, to speak about Zionism itself. And I'm going to share some of that with you when we get to the end. But I want to tell you about a different encounter that I don't have a picture of. It's when Inbar Bezek, who is also a Yesh Atid member of the Knesset, came in to speak with us. Now, she's secular. She said that, and she told us the story about her wedding. She wanted to get married, and she had some choices. She was getting married to, to a man, to an Israeli man, and she had some choices in mind for her wedding that didn't fit in with the bureaucratic, basic, what she would call nonsensical rules of the rabbinut, which is the rabbinate that maintains religious control from a strict orthodox perspective across the board in Israel. If you were here last week on Saturday morning, you heard Rabbi Leibovitz speak about this aspect. Now I'm going to tell you the story that she told us, this member of Knesset, about her particular experience with marriage in Israel. She wanted to get married after 1 p.m. on a Friday. If you know our sources well, are you allowed to get married on a Friday afternoon? Yes. Yeah, in fact, there's a whole discussion. Yes, the answer is yes from Norm. Not only are you allowed to get married on a Friday afternoon, but there are actually rules about how the simcha of Chatan and Kala can bleed into Shabbat. That was not what Inbar was there to talk to us about. She said, I just, I just wanted to get married. It was like 2 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. They wouldn't do it. So I found myself a rabbi from the Masorti movement. That's the one connection I made. She said, I'll admit, it's not exactly a dogmatic thing. It's not my philosophy that I'm Masorti. I just wanted a rabbi who'd marry me when they would marry me. That simple decision has created a web of bureaucratic nightmares for her and for her husband and for her children. She's a member of Knesset. Every time they have to go and do something with their passports, both parents have to be present because on the books in Israel, they are not registered as married. In fact, she was sitting in front of a bureaucrat arguing this, as Israelis do, and this particular bureaucratic person said to her, your marriage is just in your head. Now, Inbar says that when she told this to her husband, he tucked it away in the back of his mind, 
and every once in a while, when she asks him to do the dishes, he says, I'm only your husband in your head, remember. Now, what's become a joke in their family, though, is a painful reality for over 500,000 Israeli citizens. There's probably more and counting. The passion that was reignited in me as a former APAC fellow, as somebody who follows and loves the Hartman Institute both here in North America and in Israel, and loves Israel to my core, but that passion that was reignited in me to fight fiercely was reignited towards a single point. And that was this phrase that I took in from my teacher, Dr. Arnie Eisen, who at the time was the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, a sociologist formerly holding a chair at Stanford, who calls the center of the religious spectrum the vital religious center. That passion I found back lit up within me was the passion to connect with my brothers and sisters and protect that vital religious center, not just here, although there's a lot to be said about what a vital religious center could do for America right now, and put a pin in that for another conversation, but what a vital religious center could do for Israel. But Rakefet Ginsburg, head of the Tenuma Masortit in Israel, she said that that's not quite right. And now we're going to study some texts that help us look at it in a different way. Not just me, but I hope you as well by the end of this discussion. I want us to turn to Pirkei Avot. You're probably familiar with these Mishnahs. Pirkei Avot sometimes traditionally studied during the seven weeks. It's a fairly accessible piece of our Mishnah. And this Mishnah that I pulled out from the fifth chapter says, Kol every argument, that's for the sake of heaven, its outcome will endure. If it's not for the sake of heaven, then the end, the outcome of that discussion will not endure. Then the text asks itself, what are exactly Machlokot that are l'shem shemaim, arguments for the sake of heaven. And what are arguments that are not for the sake of heaven? And the text doesn't define, but rather gives examples. It says a controversy that was for the sake of heaven, that was between the schools of Hillel and Shammai. Nod your head if you've heard of Hillel and Shammai. Good, a little familiar. And we're going to read a text from Yivamot, from the Talmud in a moment, that takes us more deeply into them. What's the controversy that wasn't for the sake of heaven? What does the text say? Who was it all about? Korach, the antagonist of our Parsha, Korach, the Chol Adato. Their argument was not for the sake of heaven. I want to ask you a question before we look at Yevamot together. What exactly is Sofa Lehikayem? The outcome of the argument will endure. What, what does it mean to have an enduring outcome of a machloket, of an argument? Anybody want to take a stab at defining that? What do you think? Both sides respect each other. Both the majority and minority opinions uh, um, are carried forward, are remembered, is the word you used, right? And what was the last thing? It's, it sticks around for a long time. Okay, that is one wonderful interpretation of what an enduring outcome of an argument can be. Anyone want to define 
an enduring outcome of an argument, so fa'lahikayem differently. Marshall has an idea, and then Aaron. Oh, something that sticks around is precedent. That's great. Precedent is a word that we're hearing a lot lately. Right, so enduring means it sticks around as a precedent that maybe others would refer to in the future. Aaron, thoughts? Right, so Aaron says, so there's this preserved argument about when do you light Hanukkah candles? Do you do it in the morning? Do you do it at night? And how do we know, Aaron, that the enduring outcome is the nighttime candle lighting? Because we do it at night. So maybe an enduring outcome also, if you don't mind my extending your definition, then Brant's been raising his hand for a while. Uh, and the idea of enduring, oh, it was, oh, it was somewhere in that corner. Uh, the enduring outcome is one that we see lived out by our people. Right? We, we actually see it present as a practice. Uh, whoever was raising their hand in that corner, which might have been my husband, and then, uh, and then Joey, and then we're going to move on. Yeah. Great. So there are these examples in Tanakh of God ratifying Moshe's decision. And maybe from those examples, particularly the ones where Moshe wasn't really sure about what to do, but simply decided, it's that ratification by the divine that gives us that enduring argument. For those who, for whom ratification is a fancy word, it's like God voted yes, and God's vote counts for a lot. Yes, Joey. That's right. So Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai have another argument about Hanukkah candles, about whether we should increase the light every night as we do or don't. We do. Every night there's a bit more light. Or Beit Shammai's opinion, which I happen to like a lot, which is to go along with the story and have the drama of the light decreasing. And what you're saying and what Aaron's adding goes to Norm's point, which is that perhaps it's that we preserve, we remember those arguments. I want to take a look into the Talmud right now. At Yevamot. I want you to, I promise you I won't make you explain it, but raise your hand if you feel like you understand the concept of chalitza deeply. You know what chalitza is, you understand it, you get it. Great. So given the small speckling sprinkling of hands that said so, we're going to say for all of you, you can take in this next conversation with all the context you know about chalitza. And for the rest of you, all you need to know is that whether a woman participates in chalitza, which is the shoe-related, remember the shoe thing, it's ringing any bells now? The shoe-related ritual that has to do with the remarriage of a woman after her uh, husband's death, that that has a, a, an impact upon her status for yet another remarriage, Okay. So we know that her status is impacted by whether or not she participated in Chalitza. So I'm going to read to us a little bit and stick to the English for now. And I want you to go ahead and read, read ahead if you feel like reading ahead too, because it might help inform you. So basically, Beit Shammai says that if one of the rival wives of a brother performed Chalitza, did this ritual, that she winds up in a status that disqualifies her from marrying a Kohen, marrying into the priesthood. Further down the page, remember that the bold on Safaria texts are actual translation of the Aramaic or Hebrew, and the rest is uh, aiding us to understand. Beit Hillel says, eh, they're fine to marry. When they say deemed fit, that means eh, they're fine to marry Kohanim next. We're, uh, we're going to skip down to that little, do you see that little squiggly? Is there a name for that symbol? About two-thirds the way through the source in English. And we're going to look at the Mishnah commentary and says, although Beit Hillel prohibited the rival wives to the brothers and Beit Shammai permitted them, 
And although these disqualify these women, meaning one of the schools disqualifies, we saw above, and the others deem them fit, Beit Shammai did not refrain from marrying women from Beit Hillel, nor did Beit Hillel refrain from marrying women from among Beit Shammai. So what does that mean for Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai? What does that tell us about their two schools of thought? Somebody give us the TLDR, the summary of that. Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai felt okay with what? Great. So as Norm was explaining, they could have easily said if they have a disagreement about the way in which we interpret marital statuses and the fitness of an individual to get married, they might have prohibited their kids. You, know, you got to think about it, teaching it to the generations. They might have said, I'm not marrying my kid to someone from that school. And they can't marry people from our school of thought, people who are, who are students of this school of thought. I want us to move on to the, it's actually the next page in the Talmud, Yavamot 14a, okay? And we're going to look at a little bit more of a disagreement that gets played out a little bit further between the two schools. So the question remains, according to the one who said that Beit Shammai acted in accordance with their opinion, we should read here, you shall not cut yourselves, which is interpreted to mean do not become numerous factions, or in the Hebrew, lo teach go to do. Don't fracture your people. And yet, we're referring to a case where two courts are located in one city, and these rule in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai, and those rule in accordance with the statement of Beit Hillel. However, with regard to two courts located in two different cities, there's no problem. We have no problem with it. So if they're in the same city, it's an issue. But if they're in two different cities, we have no problem with it. Rava has an interpretation and says, Lo Tit Go To Do is referring to a case where there's a court in one city, a section of which rules in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai, and another section rules in accordance with the statement of Beit Hillel. So Rava says that the issue, the prohibition of don't fracture yourselves, applies to a singular court whom amongst them has some who are ruling in accordance with one school of thought and some who are ruling in accordance with another. So according to Rava, could you maybe have even two different courts in that city ruling in two different ways? I think we can take that from there. Okay? And then furthermore, the Gemara cites some other relevant sources. Come and hear, they're going to tell us a story. In the locale of Rabbi Eliezer, where his ruling was followed, they would cut down trees on Shabbat to prepare charcoal from them to fashion iron tools with which to circumcise a child on Shabbat. Do we understand the example? They would go and they would do what is probably considered malacha, that was l'shem mitzvah, brit milah, for the sake of the mitzvah of doing brit milah. Turn the page. We're going to look at two more examples from this text. The Brita adds, this is, by the way, the namesake for my child, Yossi. Yossi's name comes from, uh, from uh, this particular rabbi, Yossi Haglili. In the locale of Yossi Haglili, they ate chicken parmesan. Yeah, this is that text, in case you've ever seen people refer to the idea that there's an example of a rabbi uh, in the Talmud, Yossi Haglili, 
would permit them to eat poultry, meat, and milk, as Rabbi Yossi Agalili held that the prohibition of meat and milk does not include poultry. Who's a fan immediately of Rabbi Yossi Agalili? Okay, all right. We'll talk later. Uh, and I want to um, skip down to the piece in the middle of the page that says, the Gemara asks, and what is this refutation? As stated above, it's different when dealing with numerous places, right? Meaning not one court, not one city, but rather even in disparate places. And the Barite explicitly states that this practice was followed in Rabbi Eliezer's locale, okay? In their town, Chicken Parm, okay? Consequently, there's no violation of this whole splitting into factions thing. Gemara asks then, he who asked it, why did they ask it? Like, what's the issue? What's the basis for the question in the first place? It's obvious that the Breita is referring to a specific place. Oh, now the narrative voice of the Talmud thinks they're so sure, right? Whoever is narrating our Talmud here says, shouldn't it have been clear from the start? Basically what Rava said, it's about one court that's split. It isn't about all these different places. And the Gemara has an answer for this. Well, it might enter your mind to say that due to Shabbat being so serious, the world is considered like a single locale. In other words, one might have thought that the permission to tolerate diverse customs in different places applies only to other prohibitions, whereas the prohibition of Shabbat is so severe that it is unacceptable to allow different customs as this might lead people to disrespect Shabbat. So the Brighta teaches us that even in the case of Shabbat, there can be different customs in different locales. We're gonna stop there with the text and I wanna bring you back to the present. But if you'd like to, I'm gonna be referring to that first Mishnah on the page so you can use it for reference. We started our conversation with the question, what is sofa lahit kayem? What is that its end is enduring? In America, here, our conservative movement has drawn me to be a protector of that vital religious center. But I think that the way that the Masorti movement in Israel and across the world understands Judaism and understands their role specifically in the state of Israel is an answer to what Sofa Lahid Kayem means. They see their role as preserving, in the words of Rakhefet Ginsburg, one of the corners of the Talit of Retzef Yahadut, one of the corners of the Talit of the spectrum of Judaism, which I would prefer to translate as Judaisms. They believe that it's not their job to simply guard those who are Benoni, who are middle ground, those who cannot find a home elsewhere. As we joke about, conservative movement is what the other movements are not. That's not how they do Judaisms. For them, the Kotel Hamishbachot that platform that they were begging Naftali Bennett, and now we are pleading with the incoming, we have an interim, but the incoming government to truly complete as promised, that platform. They're not fighting for it, she says, Rekhefet Ginsburg says, they're not fighting for it for Masorti Jews, for reform B'nai Mitzvah to come. They're fighting for it for anyone 
who wants a place to peacefully pray near the Kotel. They are fighting for an umbrella. They are fighting for Judaism's plural. Now we spent a lot of times, wow, that wind has a lot to say. We spent a lot of time in our, on our trip to Israel exploring the idea of Judaism's and learning in and leaning into this idea that perhaps our role, those of us who are located in the vital religious center, is to become like an umbrella to see all Judaisms as those which our viewpoint, our hashkafa, protects. And in return, I learned something about my own Zionism that I want to share with you. In Israel, when someone asks what kind of a Jew you are, there is no binary answer. People do not often say, I am a reformed Jew. I am a conservative Jew. I'm an orthodox Jew. And this we know. We know that in America, we have moved, taken a, a large leap since the 1850s when we first had a movement in America, the reform movement. We know that we've taken huge leaps towards post-denominationalism and to the understanding that even those who firmly plant themselves as parts of communities that carry these names, they're all on a spectrum. How I observe at home, how I observe at synagogue, what my synagogue is like, we know that Judaism is plural. It's dominoes. Just leave it, everyone just leave. We know and we have begun to accept this idea that even if we are movement Jews through and through, we see our movement as being a large and open-armed embrace to all. Perhaps we're on that road. And while we say that Israel often has a lot to learn from us in our Judaisms, I think we have a lot to learn from her. And I think we have a responsibility in return for Zionism. You see, in America, somehow Zionism is also singular. You're either Zionist or you're not Zionist. I just finished my term on the American University Hillel board. I am an alum of that university, been on the board for six years. And Jason Benkendorf, who's the director of that Hillel, and I speak all the time about the trouble with not just Jews failing to see Zionism as a possibility of Zionisms, but non-Jews as well. In today's youngest generations, brightest learners across the board, they understand that so little is binary anymore. Gender, sexuality, ethnicity, race, and they extend that concept to almost everything that they're willing to engage with intellectually. But we as a Jewish community have not given enough reason or taught loudly enough that there is no such thing as I am Zionist or I am not Zionist. There are Zionisms, plural. The only way, the only way that Zionism can become Zionisms, plural, an accepted understanding that extends even to those who aren't Jewish themselves, is that those who find themselves on the part of the political spectrum attacking Zionism, singular, we must say to them, the Zionism you don't believe in is also the Zionism that I don't believe in. But from the other end of the spectrum, it must be that we, as a Jewish people, 
open our arms to the concept of Zionism such that those who would otherwise gatekeep Zionism, only this organization can represent the true interests of Israel. Only this perspective could possibly render you a Zionist. We must ask anyone from that perspective to release that grip, grip to release that grip and to lean into this idea of a retzef, of a spectrum of Zionisms, that the Zionism that you don't believe in is perhaps not the Zionism I believe in, but I'd love for you to learn about the Zionism that I do. I want to offer two practical things to close this learning. The first is for those who are interested in diving deeper into your learning, either by traveling to Israel, by engaging with uh, PACs here in the United States or abroad, if you don't yet see a faction within this community to become your micro community, to represent your Zionism and to support you, I'm here to support you in that. I wanna hear from you and I want to learn what other Zionisms are flourishing in our midst because perhaps I haven't yet understood where you are and perhaps there's something you want to learn and a perspective you'd like to lean into. I'd like to try it with you. The second thing is I'd like all of us to be aware of the 2025 World Zionist Organization elections and the impact that we can have, even those of us who are not so engaged most of the time with the state of Israel and with her internal politics. But that's our chance to voice our opinion and to partner alongside our Merkaz and Masorti brothers and sisters who work hard year round for the country they live in and who are asking us to stand alongside them so that when we visit Israel, we see an Israel that contains a retzef yahadut, a spectrum on which our perspective is mirrored. That only happens if we stand up and voice our vote. And as soon as we approach more closely that season of uh, registration and voting, I look forward to engaging with you more about that. And so this becomes our machloket that is sofa lahit kayem. What is it to be, what is the enduring outcome of this Mishnah, which itself doesn't have an outcome? The enduring outcome is pluralism itself. That is the outcome, that is a mission worthy of pursuing, not just in Judaism, but also in Zionism, such that we become the umbrella for so many more ideas than the one perspective we might carry ourselves. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.